0: today is mother's day and we want to acknowledge all the women we're blessed to know we rejoice over you for your strength your wisdom your strong love your beautiful faith whether today is a celebration for you or a day of quiet reflection and healing we're thinking of all of you if you gave birth this year to your first child our joy overflows and we celebrate with you if you adopted a child this year or became a foster parent, we rejoice with you and we want to honor you in your commitment to changing the lives of children. If you continue to struggle with infertility, we are hoping with you and holding your hand in prayer. If you are exhausted and feeling underappreciated for all you do for a house full of kids, we applaud you. We love you and we appreciate you more than you can ever imagine. And if you lost a child this year to death or miscarriage, we weep and mourn with you. And if your child is lost to addiction or to the world, we hurt with you and we join you in putting our hope in the one who brings prodigals home. If you live with painful memories of your mom, we pray that you will find in a spiritual mother all that you never had from a birth mom. And if you're one of those amazing spiritual moms, we thank you for stepping up and being there when others couldn't. If you're experiencing an empty nest for the first time this year, we walk with you in this new season and are excited about the next chapter God has planned for you. If you're single, we celebrate your strength beauty, and individuality, and join with you in praying for the desires of your heart. If you're a single mom, and wonder if you have the physical energy, and financial resources to raise and provide for your child or children, we wanna help you, and we will. And if you're pregnant for the first time, we prayerfully anticipate with you the joyful birth of a healthy child. And to all the special women on this Mother's Day, rest and delight in knowing that we are thankful for you, and we celebrate each and every one of you.
1: If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Titus, chapter 2, put you a bookmark in there or a... uh a little bulletin or something to hold your place. Just a few minutes, we're going to be spending uh, some time in in this passage in Titus chapter 2. But before we do that, we're going to look at a couple of passages in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 as we talk about the topic of gospel-centered womanhood. My aim today is to preach the gospel and still have you out of here to beat most of the crowds to the Mother's Day lunch rush. So we'll see how well I accomplish that today. But we also want to take this opportunity today to affirm the value and the God-given purpose for all of our women, whether mothers, grandmothers, not yet mothers, and the myriad of other women in our world and who in our church who passionately and purposefully live their lives for the kingdom of God. As I think about preaching a message on Mother's Day and specifically on the topic of gospel-centered womanhood, you look around the landscape of our culture today and the reality is that womanhood and manhood are in a state of confusion today. We live in a culture and in a time where gender roles and, and gender roles within the home, within the church and within the culture at large are massively confused. What constitutes a man? What constitutes a woman. How do we define womanhood, much less pursue what it is that we're supposed to be? Ladies, are you supposed to be the tender, meek, and mild homemaker like June Cleaver, who takes care of her house, takes her husband's shoes off when he comes home, and has cookies available for the kids as soon as they walk into the house? Is that who you're supposed to be? No, sir. Thank you. I knew I'd get some reaction. Are you supposed to be the supermodel, Victoria's secret woman, who works out for three hours a day, eats only salad and rice cakes, and works to keep the perfect figure? Are you supposed to be? Are you supposed to be the rugged pioneer woman out on the plains cooking in cast iron skillets, chasing in the cows and harvesting the crops? Are you supposed to be the career-minded woman climbing the ladder of success and fighting to make your way in a man's world? These are all images that constitute womanhood within our culture, and no wonder we're confused about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a woman of God and to know what your place is in this world, but truthfully... And scripturally, gender roles have been confused ever since Genesis chapter 3. When we look at God's Word and when we look at the overall landscape of the gospel and we see how things have worked according to biblical history, the reality is that understanding what a woman's role is is a consequence of the, what we call the fall. It's a consequence of the fall of mankind from its state of perfect perfection and creation. Now in recent decades, the reason why we have so much confusion in our culture about gender roles is because there was a, has been a, a massive movement born out of both the feminist movement and the equal rights movements which attempt to blur all gender distinctions in society to deny any differences whatsoever between men and women. And instead, the focus is on sameness. But the reality of it is, is that if, if you've been married more than 10 minutes, you've probably come to a great realization that men and women are massively different. We're different in our in our makeup, we're different in our values, we're different in in the things that we pursue after, we're different in the way that we process things. And even in my own, I've been married almost 22 years now, I've known Allison for 23 years and 23 years of being together, I'm still as confused sometimes about how I'm supposed to process things as opposed to how she processes things and and most of the time the source of our arguments, when they do come, few and far between, but the source of our arguments simply just come down to men and women handle things differently. And sometimes it's hard to remember that. And this pendulum swing of, of, of egalitarianism is really a reaction to centuries of oppression by women, by patriarchal views that subjected women for hundreds of years as secondary citizens in society, Denying women certain values values and rights and defining the role of a woman as only what they brought to the table for men. And this reaction of egalitarianism has not so much added value to women as much as it has continued to confuse both men and women about what it means at heart to be a woman and specifically what it means to be a woman of God. Now, Theologically, I am what is called a complementarian. And what I mean by that is that I believe that manhood and womanhood is not ultimately defined by the lines that society draws, but by the way that God has created men and women. That our definition of who we are is not going to vacillate depending upon the winds of culture but are what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is specifically lined out in God's Word that God has created men and women with different yet complementary roles in the home, in society, and in the church. God has made men and women not only biologically different but also emotionally and psychologically different and Men and women find their ultimate purpose by pursuing and embracing a gospel-centered definition of manhood and a gospel-centered definition of womanhood, which is defined by God's Word and the gospel. And when we pursue that, we will see that while men and women are not the same, they are very different, they work together to accomplish complementary roles, thus the name complementarian. Let me talk to you for a few minutes about womanhood according to the gospel. And I want to just point you to three truths that kind of lay the groundwork for what we're going to look at in just a second when we see Paul's instructions to Titus about the role of women within the church. The first of those truths is simply this. Men and women are uniquely and purposefully created by God. Men and women are uniquely and purposefully created by God. As disciples of Jesus, I do not believe that we should look to Oprah or to Dr. Phil or to Dr. Oz or Ellen DeGeneres or any other cultural commentator to get the answers which define us as individuals. I believe that as disciples of Jesus, we should seek to find our definition of who we are and what God has called us to be by studying God's Word. And if you believe that God exists, and if you believe that God is a good and perfect creator, then why would you not seek to get your instructions about life from Him, and why instead would you seek to get those instructions from media and culture as a whole? And when we look to God's Word, one of the first truths that we see beginning in the book of Genesis is that men and women are uniquely and purposefully created by God Himself. And so as we travel back to where it all began in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see specifically three important truths about each of us as individuals, about men and women. First of all, we see that we were created to bear God's image. We were created to bear God's image. Genesis 1:27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see that God, in his his creation mandate, sets out to create manhood. And in the process of creating manhood, he creates two very unique individuals. One, a man, and one, a woman. Male and female. And both of them were created to be image bearers of God. So we're created to bear God's image in this world. We're created to, to be a visible demonstration of God to the world around us. But we're also created to fulfill God's purpose. Not only are we created in God's image, but Genesis 1:28 tells us that after God created them, it says God blessed them... And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God takes man and woman, says to them, as it says there in Genesis chapter 28, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Both men and women were given the mandate to be co-creators with God in His plan. And that we are created to fulfill a purpose. We're created to multiply, to fill the earth, to have dominion over the earth, to to be God's vice regents on this earth and to rule this world in a way that ultimately brings us to point number three, which is that we were created to display God's glory. So men and women, uniquely and purposefully created by God, were created to bear God's image To fulfill God's purpose and to display God's glory. One of the ways that we do this is through the covenant of marriage. We've had a lot of confusion in recent years in our culture about what constitutes a marriage. And the reality of it is is that our culture simply defines marriage as this, that marriage is a physical and emotional contract between two people who have loving feelings for one another. That's pretty much how our culture defines marriage. So it's a physical and emotional contract between two individuals who have loving feelings for one another. But that's not how God defines marriage. And if you only define marriage as a physical and emotional contract between two people who have feelings for one another, then who's to say who can be married to whom? And who's to say that someone can't marry whoever they want to marry? But when we see God's Word and we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, we see that Marriage is not a a contract or a a relationship that was created by human beings in order to fulfill their physical and emotional values. Marriage was something that was created by God to display the gospel. And so we go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and we read this After God creates man and woman, God declares, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so what we see from the beginning in Genesis is that women and men were created as co-equals before God, equal value, but with very distinct gender identifications and very distinct roles. Women are created to be the vessels of procreation, and as such, they usually have more nurturing roles within the home and within society. When you were a little boy and you fell down on your bicycle and you skinned your knee, did you run to dad for affirmation and comfort or did you run to mom? Who did you run to? You normally ran to mom because mom normally has the natural, nurturing, nesting, mothering instincts. And women were also created with with very different values. Women were created to to seek security as a primary value in their life. While most men are wired to seek significance as a primary value in their life. I've counseled with dozens and dozens if not hundreds of couples over the years about problems that they're having communicating with one another and 95% of it comes down to a difference between one, the woman, usually seeking security in some particular way and the husband, the man, seeking significance. And understanding that God has purposefully and beautifully crafted men and women with different but complementary roles helps us to work through the confusion in this world about what constitutes a man and what constitutes a woman. And this has dramatic implications on gender identity and dramatic implications on how we define marriage. Listen carefully as I say this to you, this is not on your notes. The highest purpose of marriage is not your personal fulfillment, but your gospel demonstration. Let me say that for you again. The highest purpose of your marriage is not your personal fulfillment, but your demonstration and representation of the gospel. That's why God institutes the covenant of marriage as the first human covenant in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. That's why Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us about the declaration of marriage and showing us that this one flesh relationship, that in doing so, husbands and wives are modeling to the world the relationship between Christ and the church. The institution of marriage was not given to men and women as a vehicle primarily for our personal happiness, but as a model of the relationship that exists between Jesus Christ and His covenant people. And this is why, ladies, you need to keep your focus on the gospel in your marriage when times get tough. Because if not, you will have a tendency to walk away from your marriage because you are focusing more on happiness and fulfillment than you are on Christ and holiness. The highest purpose of marriage is not your personal fulfillment, but the demonstration of the gospel. And what we see in the garden is a God who creates man and woman and declares them in a covenant of personal relationship and that woman is the helpmate and the co-equal of man in relationship to God, enjoying perfect intimacy without shame and having no confusion whatsoever about their roles. But then something tragic happens. Which brings us to the second truth, and that is that sin has fractured God's perfect design and confused God's plan. Men and women are uniquely and purposefully created by God to bear His image, to fulfill His purpose, and to display His glory. But an invader has entered into God's perfect order and world called sin, and sin has fractured God's perfect design and confused His plan. In Genesis chapter 3, we're not going to read all of this. You can go back and read it. Many of you are familiar with it. We're introduced to the problem. In our world. And the problem is that something enters into our world that God never intended, and that is sin and rebellion. The man and the woman are in the garden, and they are told not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. And yet, one day they begin to question God's word, they begin to question God's goodness, they begin to question the sufficiency of God's provision over them. And in essence, they come to the decision that they know better about their lives than God does. And I am an individual with, with certain sovereign rights and I ought to be able to eat what I want to eat. So they do what they want to do and they do what God says not to do. And when they do, sin enters the world and they fall from this perfect state. They fall from this state where they perfectly fulfill, bear God's image and fulfill God's purpose and display God's glory because now they've chosen to take the sovereign rule of their own life and to do things their way instead of God's way. And when they do, brokenness, death, and shame rush in. And the reality of it is is that these very same things are what happen in our lives and it's what causes confusion within marriage, it's what causes confusion within culture, it's what causes confusion within our own hearts about who we are and what we're created to be. Notice what what they do next. After they fall, they, they do three things. Now tell me how often you see this in your life or in your family. The first thing they do is they attempt to cover their sin. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 says, Then the eyes of, their, uh, of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They began to cover their sin. They, they, they realize they've sinned, and they, and they look at themselves in a different light. They see something that was true about them before, but it was something that didn't bring shame to them. And what they thought would bring them fulfillment instead brings them shame and embarrassment. And so their first attempt is to try to cover up their sin. I remember when I was six years old, I was playing ball out in the backyard with a tennis ball and I was throwing it up against a small little wall trying to to field ground balls. And I probably shouldn't have been doing it there because my mom had a number of plants that were positioned on top of that wall. And I remember hitting a, a particular uh, jar, a spaghetti jar that had some plants in it and knocking it over and breaking it. And my first instinct was not to go into my mom's house and to say, Mom, I broke your jar, I broke your plant, I'm very sorry about that. I didn't go and confess my sin, instead I attempted to cover my sin. So I reached down and began to pick up the shards of glass to go and dump them out in the backyard behind the shed and cover what I had done. And in the process of doing that, I sliced my thumb open. And for the first time, I got a trip to the hospital to get stitches. And I learned a very powerful lesson that covering your mistakes doesn't always work out the way that you think it will. We attempt to cover our sin, but not only do we attempt to cover our sin, we attempt to deflect responsibility. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, when God comes to confront the man and the woman, the man says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do you see what they do here? They deflect responsibility. They begin to, they begin to go to blame-shifting. How often do you have this happen in your house when, when, when something happens? There's a conflict in your house between your children. And you ask, "What happened?" And what do it, they don't come to you and say, "Well, what happened was that that I was wrong because I was I, I did this and I did what did they, What do they do? Well, he did this, right? This is what they did, and this is what he did, and we immediately start to try to shift blame. And what's so crazy about this is that Adam not only. Shifts the blame to Eve, but he even shifts the blame to God himself, the woman that you gave to be with me. Sure fault, God. Should have gave me a better woman. Attempt to cover our sin, we attempt to deflect responsibility, and as a result, we bear the consequences of the fall. Genesis verse. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, the Bible says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I always wanted to quote that to my wife while she was having a child. But I thought better of it. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you you shall but you and you shall eat of the plants of the field and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken you are dust and to dust you shall return the curse enters into the world and work, which was supposed to bring fulfillment, brings toil. Childbearing, which was supposed to be the source of a woman's greatest joy, now brings pain. The woman's desire is now for her man or her husband. And in one sense, this means that the woman continually desires the acceptance and approval of a man even more sometimes than the acceptance of God. But her search for acceptance and security will be continually frustrated. And man, because of his physical superiority, begins to even set up a dominance over the woman instead of a complementary role. And man begins to use woman for his own use rather than enjoying her as a co-equal laborer with God. But even in the midst of this tragedy, even in the midst of bearing these consequences, God says to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he will put enmity between the offspring of the woman and himself and he begins to speak about the gospel and he says that there was coming one who will bruise the heel, the, the head of the serpent himself. This is the first proclamation of the gospel and it helps us to understand that God's answer to the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of sin, is the gospel of grace. Which brings us then to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And point number three, which is the gospel of grace, helps us to recover and pursue our God-given calling. You see, men and women are uniquely and purposefully created by God to bear His image, to fulfill His purpose, and to display His glory. And it is true that sin has entered our world and fractured God's perfect design and, 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 and thwarted and confused God's perfect plan But the answer to that is the gospel of grace. And the gospel of Jesus Christ helps us to recover and pursue our God-given calling. Look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared. That's in Jesus Christ, guys. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And in doing so, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. The gospel of God's grace comes in the form of Jesus, who lived a perfect life of righteousness that you and I could not live. God's righteousness demands perfect obedience to God. And God's justice demands perfect uh, payment for violation of His law. And in in Jesus Christ, God accomplishes both of those things. In Jesus Christ, Jesus perfectly keeps all of God's righteous requirements throughout His whole earthly life. And in going to the cross, He dies in our place, satisfying the wrath of God on sin and bringing about God's justice against our sin. Now what in the world does this have to do with womanhood? What does this have to do with Mother's Day and womanhood? It has everything to do with womanhood. Because it's only as the the fact that we understand what the gospel is and apply it to our lives, that we then can begin to recover and pursue our true God-given purpose as men and women. It's only as we understand that we are created to bear God's image and fulfill His purpose and display His glory, and the only way that we can do that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can be exactly who God has created us. To be, And the reason why our culture struggles so much with gender identity and struggles so much with defining what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is because they're trying to define those things apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of God's grace helps us to do three things. Number one, it atones for our past. It atones for our past. Ladies, let me give you a news flash here. No woman in this place is perfect. No woman in this place is perfect. But let me give you good news. You don't have to be perfect. Christ was perfect for you. Christ perfectly fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. And Christ's death has atoned for your past. And while no person in this place is perfect, God doesn't ask you to be perfect because Jesus Christ was perfect for you. And some of you in here have deep scars. From mistakes that you have made in your past. Deep scars that are still open wounds. And some of you have spent years following the world's pattern for a woman and done many things in the process that you have regretted. Some of you here today have done things that you know have grieved the heart of God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says that by trusting in Him by faith, your sin is not just overlooked. Your sin is atoned for. Your sin is paid for. And your sins and your mistakes and your past no longer define who you are. That's good news, people. The gospel of grace atones for our past. And the gospel of grace empowers our present. It not only covers up your past mistakes, but it gives you everything that is necessary to empower your obedience to God now. The gospel of Jesus not only atones for what you've done in the past, but it empowers the kind of life that God wants you to live today. Now in saying that, Paul gives instructions in this passage in Titus chapter 2 about who men and women are supposed to be. And so I want us to read this in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. He gives instructions to both men and to women, and he says this. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Those are specific instructions that Paul gives Titus, the pastor of the church in Crete, to say this is what you as a younger man, as a younger woman, as an older man, as an older woman, these are God's instructions for you. And here's the deal, when we, when we read Titus chapter 2 verses 3 through 5 and we read those instructions on older women and younger women, the reality is that no woman in this place can perfectly keep those requirements. No woman in this place can perfectly do that on your own strength. You need God's grace to do it. And no man can perfectly live up to those standards. You need God's grace to do it. And the grace of God empowers you and propels you to be the men and the women that God wants you to be while still covering your failures when you don't meet those goals. Not only does the gospel of grace atone for our past and empower our present, but it also secures our future. It secures our future as we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace in our lives gives us the fuel to live freely as He created us to be because our future in God is already secured by the reality of His grace over us. And those who have truly tasted grace and forgiveness know that their future is secure and know that what they want most is to do what glorifies Jesus Christ. The good news is the gospel, and the gospel defines who we are as men and women. And so real quickly, as we prepare to wrap this up, let me give you some practical instructions from Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Let me give you some practical instructions that Titus gives here for older women and younger women. And let me say before I do that, that I will not attempt to define what is an older woman in this place. Okay. You need to search your heart and search the scriptures and search the Holy Spirit and say, which one of these do I follow in God? So I will not define that for you today. Paul gives some specific instructions to both of these groups, and we read them in just a second ago, but let me read them for you again in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine, and they are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Very quickly, let me give you three practical instructions to the older women and about four or five practical instructions to the younger women. The first thing that Paul says here, older women, is that you are to be holy. You are to be holy. That's what it means to be reverent in behavior. To be reverent in behavior means to live with a holy fear and respect for God. It is to live with a God-centeredness in your life. It is to pursue the command in Peter to be holy as he is holy. And if you're an older woman in this place, your life as an older woman is to be an example of holy, reverential fear of God. As Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for all of us, that we are to live our lives as an example of faith, love, holiness, and self-control. And so, the first thing that I would say to you if you're an older woman in this place is that what God wants of you is for you to be holy, for you to live your life with a reverential fear and respect of God. But secondly, you're to be an example. You're to be an example. He says, not only are you to be reverent in behavior, but you are to be not slanderers or slaves to much wine. What does this mean? It means you're to be an example. Paul is saying that you're to to demonstrate for the younger women an example of what it means to be holy, specifically in two areas. Number one, in your speech. You're to be an example in your speech. That older women are not to be slanderers or malicious gossips. That godly older women know how to control their speech. If you're an older woman, you are not to be slanderous or demeaning of other people. You're not to be eager to share the latest juicy news that you found out in the community. That you're not to malign others in the church or on social media. In the passage of Proverbs chapter 31, which defines the the virtuous woman, it says of her, she speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. That is an example of being an example in your speech. Be an example in your speech. Don't be a slanderer. Don't be a gossip. Don't be someone who who loves to share news with everybody else. Only share that which is profitable and building others up according to the scriptures. But you're not only to be an example in your speech, you're to be an example in your choices. In your choices. When it says here that you're not to be slaves to much wine, many of us in here, we've been Baptist all our lives, we say, well, that's not a problem for me. But he's not just talking about drinking or drunkenness here, he's talking about being an example in your choices. In this particular culture on the island of Crete, it was very common in the first century for people to turn to wine as a stimulant or a way to cope with things. And so when Paul gives these instructions about not being a slave to wine, he's basically telling the older women to learn to be self-controlled and to understand the impact their choices have on other people, especially the younger women. You're to be an example in your speech, and you're to be an example in your choices. Your choices should reflect someone who is pursuing holiness. And holy choices are those which, like the Apostle Paul said when he said, all things are lawful to me, but all things are not profitable. That I understand that there's some things that I can do, but there's, but some of those things I shouldn't do. Because I need to be an example in the things that I say and in the choices that I make. But thirdly, older women, you're to be a disciple maker. You're to be a disciple maker. He says you are to teach what is good and train the young women. Older women, you're to understand your vital part in the disciple making process within the church. That older women are to serve as a godly example for the younger women in the church. That you're to, to impart verbally the spiritual lessons that you have learned. That you're to train the younger women what it means to love a husband and to lead a family. But you're also to train them in what it means to be a student of God's word. How to live a life of faith and devotion to God. And older women, I want you to understand that you may be in the twilight years of your earthly life, but that does not diminish your value. It increases your value and your wisdom because you have a lot to speak into the lives of younger women in this place. And Paul would say to you, if you're an older woman in this place, be a disciple maker. Find a younger woman that you can personally invest in and teach her what it means to love a husband and to raise a family and to pursue Christ. It will be a disciple maker. Younger women. Paul gives some instructions for you as well. And the first of those instructions is you're to love your family. You're to love your family. He says you're, women. the older women are to train the younger women. And what are they to train them? They're to train them to love their husbands and their children. Now, the Greek word here for love is is not the Greek word agape, which we so often see in Scripture, but it's philandros. It's a willing and determined love that is not based on a husband or a child's worthiness, but on God's command, and it is extended by a wife's affectionate and obedient heart. That younger women, you're to love your family. And let's face it, ladies, men are hard to love. I thought I would get some response from that one. (laughs) Men are hard to love. We are difficult creatures. And the reality is that often we do not deserve to be loved the way that you love us. And as I say this about loving your family according to the gospel, I say that understanding that some ladies in this place are living in very difficult marriages where your husband is very hard to love. And it's only the cross of Jesus Christ that shows you one who loved us in spite of our unloveliness that will give you the motivation to love them when they are completely unlovable. You're also to love your children. As a mom, you have a vital part to play in your children's lives. This is why every single time an athlete scores a touchdown and runs to the sideline and they put the camera on him, he yells what? Hi, mom! because you have a vital part to play in your children's lives. And you're to love them with an all-encompassing love, physically, practically, morally, and spiritually. And you're to understand as parents, your primary goal is to lead your children to faith in Christ, and that very few things demonstrate that more than the unconditional love of a mother. And when I talk about loving your family, I also recognize that, and some of you ladies in here are single and you cannot love a husband or a child yet. Let me encourage you to use this time in your life to develop a deeper love for the Lord that prepares you to love them if and when God does bring them into your life. Some ladies in here are married but unable to have children. And in addition to considering adoption, let me encourage you to understand And trust God in your pain and know that through the church and through God's mission, you still have dozens of valuable ways to love children. But love your family. Whatever family God has given you, love them. Secondly, young ladies, pursue discipline and purity. Pursue discipline and purity. Paul says to be self-controlled and pure. And this is very important for many young women today because... We live in a culture that is radically undisciplined. And discipline and purity are often shunned in favor of personal freedom and happiness. But let me encourage you, young ladies, to choose the path of purity and discipline. And I don't often try to speak into the issue of what women should wear. But let me just say this. When evaluating your wardrobe, ladies, instead of asking the first question, how does this make me look, ask the first question, does this help me dress in a way that seeks to glorify Christ and point people to Him instead of pointing people to me? And then ask how it looks. Purity here also refers to faithfulness and purity in your relationship with your your husband. And watch what you let determine your value in life. Do not seek the approval from another man other than your husband. And as the scripture says repeatedly, flee immorality. Pursue discipline and purity. Number three, care for your home. Paul talks about working from the home here, and we're going to talk about that. Women are usually nurturers and feel that the home is something that says something about them. My wife and I can walk into the very same house and see the condition of the house and process what it says about our family very differently. Because women are naturally wired to look at their home and believe that their home says something about them. Now, for some people, the best choice is to be a stay-at-home mom. For others, that's not an option. Whatever your station in life is, make caring for your home a priority. And so when Paul talks about taking care of your home or working at home, he's referring to both the physical care of your home and the spiritual care of your home. That Young ladies, you're to work to make your home a reflection of God's glory and to glorify God by the way that you care for your home in both its upkeep as well as its spiritual environment. Work to keep your home physically clean, pray diligently over your home, and seek that all things in your home are God-centered and seek to glorify Him. And young ladies, while I'm getting on to you, let me also say to your husbands, don't be a slob and learn how to do some housework. And I promise you, men, you are seldom more attractive to a woman than when you are properly vacuuming the floor and washing the dishes. And I use the word properly there. You are seldom more attractive to a woman than when you are properly vacuuming the floor and washing the dishes. Number four, young ladies, be kind. Be kind. He says that here. Young ladies, you're to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, and kind. To be kind means to be gently, considerate, congenial, and even sympathetic, especially to those who may not deserve it. And too often we define kindness because of how people are kind to us. But when someone is rude, we have a tendency to bow up and to give them a piece of our mind. But Paul says in Ephesians, to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as Christ, God in Christ has forgiven you. Ladies, learn how to be kind. Learn how to be kind in the things that you say to other people. Learn how to be kind in your reactions to people who maybe aren't very kind to you in the process. And understand that kindness is a demonstration of the grace of God. And then finally, young ladies, be submissive to godly spiritual authority. Be submissive to godly spiritual authority. In our culture, we tend to bow up anytime we read in Scripture about women being submissive to their own husbands. But as I said a second ago, I believe that God has designed men and women with very different, unique, but complementary roles within the home, within the culture, and within the church. And that God has called women to be submissive to godly spiritual authority in their lives. I will go so far as to say that I believe there is a God-given deeply embedded thing inside of every woman that longs to be submitted to a man who pursues God above all things. Because I believe it brings fulfillment and security and protection to a woman. And unfortunately, many women don't find that in the men that they live with and the men that they pursue. And so many times, conflict that happens in the home happens not because of the woman not being submissive, but because of the man not fulfilling the role in Ephesians to love the wife as Christ loved the church. When scripture speaks of submission, submission is not slavery. Submission is a willingness to surrender yourself to the godly leadership of your husband as you do to God. And remember, women, you are never called to submit to anything in a man that violates the obvious teaching of the Word of God. So older women, be holy, be an example, and be a disciple maker. And younger women, love your family, pursue discipline and purity, Care for your home, be kind, and be submissive to godly spiritual authority. These are weighty instructions for all women that are ultimately only attainable because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace that He has made available on the cross. I don't want you to leave here this morning, ladies, with these instructions and thinking that I've given you some kind of checklist that you're to go out and pursue in your own strength. I come back to what I said a second ago. It's only the gospel of God's grace that atones for our past mistakes, empowers our present, and then allows us to pursue God's design in our future. You can't follow these instructions if you're not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you understand the gospel and when you understand the power of the gospel to to take those that were cold and dead and broken and turn them into life-giving, God-glorifying image-bearers, when you understand the reality of the gospel, you understand that with God and His Spirit, all things are possible. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In just a moment, we're going to give a a hymn of invitation, a song of invitation, and we're going to give you an opportunity to respond this morning to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter who you are in here, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're a teenage boy or girl, whether you're a young boy, young lady, I want you to come back to what we said a second ago, which is this, that you were uniquely and purposefully created by God. You were created to bear His image. You were created to fulfill His purpose. You were created to display His glory. But the reality is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we're not what we need to be, that we're sinful and broken and that we need something outside of us to fix us because we can't fix ourselves. God sent His Son, Jesus, to live a life of perfect righteousness, to accomplish all of His righteous requirements that you couldn't accomplish and to die on the cross to pay the price for your sin. And what you need is to believe that and to trust in that. And so today, if you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've been trying to live life apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're finding out continually it doesn't work, I want to give you an opportunity to trust Him this morning. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation and response. And if you need to give your heart to Christ, we want to invite you to do that this morning. Maybe this morning you're not ready to walk an aisle in front of a bunch of people, but you need to talk to somebody about your relationship with God and know that myself and some of our staff will be here afterwards if you'd like to know more about how you can be a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to come this morning because as an older woman or a younger woman, you recognize... That maybe you've kind of failed in some of these instructions and you want to commit yourself to pursuing those better in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And maybe this morning you just need to come for prayer. Maybe you just need to come and pray at this altar and say, God, give me the strength to be the woman that you've created me to be. Whatever it is, in these few moments, you... Respond as the Holy Spirit leads you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for speaking to us today, for inspiring your word, and for demonstrating to us the gospel of grace and help us to lean and trust in the grace of Jesus Christ today to be all the things that we need to be. So, Father, speak to us. God, anyone in this place today that needs to respond, give them the strength and the boldness and the courage to respond today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you respond?